Now, uh, for this Sunday, uh, we're in 1 Samuel. Now, this whole of last year, we started in Genesis and worked our way through to 1 Samuel. Last week was our first week, so if you weren't here last week, I do encourage you to listen to the message. Uh, It might not be the best message you've ever heard, but it'll help set some context. Today, we're going to sit in, jump into 1 Samuel 2, just a little preamble. One, uh, 1 Samuel takes place in the era of the Judges. Judges ends with this line, this sort of famous line, you know, their people were doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. So that's the context of 1 Samuel. You also have in this context, in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah and uh, Pania and Elkanah, this family that are going to worship, and uh, you have this woman, Hannah, who pours out her heart and this disaster that takes place around it in this family, in this religious system. Again, listen to last week's message. Um, and what you have is Hannah ends up having a child and then sort of gives the child into Shiloh to this religious system uh, where Eli presides as a way of giving her son, uh, who was sort of the product of the Lord, back to the Lord. And that's sort of setting the stage for 1 Samuel 2. This is, uh, picks up in verse 11. And the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. One word here I I should have said, you're not going to totally understand what is about to happen. At least I didn't the first time I read it. But believe me, we'll, we'll go back, we'll sort of, I don't know, tease out what's happening historically and culturally. Bear with me. Okay. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. And all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came here. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give me meat for the priest to roast.'" That was my sort of different voice. Sorry. All right. Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept the boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. See what I mean? I don't know. Unless you're like really well-versed, in ancient Israelite practices at Shiloh, you probably are like, okay, meat, pot, three-pronged fork, okay. Okay, so to begin with, one thing that's really important to note, sorry, I think I had a little too much caffeine. Okay. (laughs) So at the beginning of 1 Samuel 2, obviously the author's trying to create a contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons, right? Samuel is said to minister before the Lord. Eli's sons are said to be worthless. Ironically, this is the exact same word, worthless, that Eli said of Hannah when she was pouring out her heart in the tent of meeting. Uh, So now, you know, his sons are actually the worthless ones. Eli said sons are said to be worthless. Uh, But why? Well, that's what this text is trying to help us see. But in order to understand why they're worthless, we need to understand what's happening here. Likely what is happening, and just forewarn you, there is a lot of debate around this. This is my best historical reconstruction. So likely they're describing the peace offering that is teased out in Leviticus. 
Now, the reason it is likely the peace offering is that the only offering in which the offerer would take the offering after and boil it in their own home. Now, flow-wise, it would kind of happen like this. Now, if you were at Wellspring before the pandemic, I used to use whiteboard a lot, so I'm breaking it out today. Um, it's a little more complicated because now I have three audiences, one on a TV, one up here. Thank you guys for sitting there. It's perfect. I'll try and angle it. Uh, and then you guys. All right, flow-wise. You'd start at your home. And you're at your home, you'd say, you know what, this year when I go to Shiloh, I am going to, I don't know, I'm going to bring this sacrifice. Let's say you're going to bring a lamb. And then what you'd do is you'd bring it, right, to the tent of meeting, which was like a 15 by 30 foot structure. Here you had what was called like the Holy of Holies. Um, and then right here, you'd have an altar. So you'd bring your little lamb to this altar, and the priest would be there, and this is where they would butcher the animal. So they'd butcher this lamb, uh, and then they would sort of drip the blood, and then they would take some of the animal, mostly the fat, that's my fire, uh, they would take the fat, they would take the liver, and they would take the kidneys, and they would burn it, okay? But you still have a butchered animal right here, okay? Now, what you would do at this point is there's prescribed meat that the priest would get at this point. And they would take their prescribed meat and they would cook it in their own little space. I don't know if it's here or somewhere. And then you would take the meat and you'd go back to your home and you'd have one to two days, 24 to 48 hours to boil said meat. Make sense? Thank you. Loving it. All right. Instead, what the... Eli's sons would do is they would send an attendant from here to the home while they were boiling the meat. And rather than taking the prescribed part of the offering that they were supposed to get here, they would send the attendant into your home with a fork into your private space, into your worship prep. They would take a fork and they would jab it into your pot, and they would take whatever they wanted out. Second, not only would they do that with their... I'm going to do a fork drawing. I didn't practice this. That's more like a pitchfork. Sorry. Okay. Not only would they do that, but they would sometimes go into your home before you had started boiling, and they would pick the best... Man, this is a disaster. That's hard. Okay. They would pick the best part of the meat for themselves. The raw meat before it was boiled. Oh, I like it fried. I like it grilled. And then they would take that meat, which they weren't supposed to have, and then they would use it in their own space as they wanted. Kind of getting a feel for how they were violating this process. You see, the priests, they didn't have land, they didn't have animals. So that's why in the sacrificial system, they got to have some of the meat so that they could participate at the party at the end. Remember in chapter 1 when Hannah and Elkanah and Peniah, they're, they're having a party at the end of the sacrifice. They're having a feast, right? The priests could then take their meat and go and join the partiers and say, how good is God? But if they didn't get the meat, they couldn't participate. 
Right? So it's built into the system. But they're invading homes. They're taking meat that wasn't designated for them. They're undermining the people's worship to God. To make matters worse, if someone said, hey, hey, this is not what's supposed to happen, right? They send the attendant in, they're invading the home, and someone says, dude, this is not cool. This is not what it says in Leviticus. This is not what Moses told us to do. They would say then, threaten them with force. If you tell anyone, someone's going to visit you later. They would threaten them with force. So it shouldn't surprise us that Eli's sons are considered worthless. And they're described in the text in verse 17 saying they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, by way of contrast, what's interesting in this story is it'll start flipping back and forth between Eli's sons and Samuel. Verse 18, Samuel, by contrast, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give your, you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Right, so right after you have this despicable behavior by Eli's sons, you have this contrast. Now look at Samuel. Right? Samuel's ministering before the Lord. He's not treating the altar and all the sacrificial system with contempt. He's ministering before the Lord rather than for himself. He says, the text says that he wears a linen ephod, which is really interesting. This is a garment that's only worn by priests which would have been super unusual for a boy his age. And in verse 21, it says that Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Right? Unlike Samuel's, or, uh, Eli's sons, it seems like Samuel's kind of on the right track. And then simultaneously, when you're having this contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel, you also have this kind of contrast that's sort of under the surface between Eli and Hannah. Right? Hannah seems actually attentive to her sons. She brings them this new garment each year, right? which he would have used as a blanket at night. Eli, on the other hand, seems more focused on his priestly duties on some level than he does on disciplining his children, who are clearly out of control. And this becomes even clearer as the passage unfolds. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, right? People are coming back to him saying, look what your sons are doing. And how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the meeting, tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good report that I hear from the people Love the Lord, spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Right? So Eli is depicted as this older man 
who's you know, growing older, and he's getting these reports back from the people. Hey, Eli, your sons, they stole my meat. They broke into my home. He threatened me. He threatened to kill me if, he, if I didn't give him raw meat. Look what they're doing, Eli. He also hears that there's women, right? So there's women in the law that are able to work in this temple area, right? They're serving as attendants. They're doing all kinds of things. Sorry, ten of meaning, not temple. And there's women. This is their ministry. They're offering themselves to the Lord, and Eli's sons are laying with them. And despite this, Eli does almost nothing. He had the power to do whatever he needed. He's not a victim here. He made a choice. He could have intervened. He could have stopped them. But why didn't he? Why wouldn't you if you were in his position? Maybe on one level, you know, he liked having his meat cooked the way he wanted it. Now, he wasn't the one stealing the meat, but he certainly profited by getting that choice meat that everyone wanted. But my guess is it's a little deeper than that. There's a few reasons for this. The main one is right after this, God actually sends a prophet. And this prophet goes to Eli and says some pretty intense things to Eli. Verse 29, this is from the prophet that God sends. It's sort of this abrupt shift. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? Right? This is God through the prophet to Eli. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Right? Honor in this text is the word kavod or glory. Right? Rather than glorifying me, Eli, you're glorifying your sons and yourself. Right? You've chosen not to cause conflict with your sons. You have chosen your sons over me. Which is, of course, idolatry. Right? To honor anyone, whether it's something we love or someone we love, over God is idolatry. This is really what Eli is doing in his, his heart. Right? And it's leaking into his inaction. Rather than commanding his sons to stop, which clearly would have resulted in significant relational backlash. They're certainly not going to like being pulled out of the system. They're not going to like their dad, but also the lead priest in all of Israel, stopping them, the public humiliation. So Eli, codependently, just tells them, hey guys, stop. Hey guys, stop. Hey guys, why aren't you stopping? Hey guys, why aren't you stopping? He's reminding and reminding and sort of saying stuff without actually doing anything to stop it. He tries to ask questions. He tries to reason with them, which is fine if they're Samuel's age. But Eli's sons aren't 10. They're grown men doing evil things, and they need to be stopped. 
Eli had the power to stop them, and he doesn't. And as a result, God, through the prophet, says to Eli, Behold, the days are coming when I cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Basically what he's saying is, because you did not take care of your responsibilities, you're going to lose all your privileges as a priest. Right? And because you ate all the good food, stealing from God and from people, your descendants actually are going to look on with envy at the prosperity of others. Doris, you can sit if you'd like. And then he specifically says to Eli's sons in verse 34, In this that shall come upon your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be given the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. I was trying to like, you know, it's easy when you're reading the text to just sort of speed through, but I was trying to imagine how this would have felt for Eli. You know, all these years, he's kind of letting things pass, letting things pass, probably because he doesn't want to create conflict. And I wonder if in this moment he realizes with regret all the things he should have said, all the things he should have done. And he realizes that his inaction, his fear, his codependency, his whatever, is now actually not have going to have protected them at all, but actually lead to their death. Right? He totally misses it. In his negligence with his power and the responsibilities given to him, because of his negligence, he's going to lose his family, his sons, his family's honor. And as the text fills out, like you're going to see, he's actually going to die too. Finally, the man of God says to Eli in verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will bid him, build him a sure house, and he, he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, when you're reading this text, the intuitive thought is to say, obviously, that's Samuel, right? He's the contrast. But actually, what becomes clear as the story unfolds is this actually refers to Zadok, uh, who's David's faithful priest a little bit uh, later, and he becomes under, he kind of becomes preeminent under Solomon. But it's also clear in this text, while this is talking about Zadok, it's also pointing beyond him. Right? You remember when we, last week, when we talked about Hannah's prayer, and it has both personal significance to Hannah right? It's for personally for her, but it also points to this future hope for a king. It also points to this idea of anointed. Remember what we talked about? Anointed means Mashiach or Messiah, Christos, Christ. There's this hope in Israel for a king and a Messiah. 
And now what we're seeing in chapter 2 is there's this hope for a faithful priest that is also connected to this Messiah, this one who will come to save. With many things in Samuel, we're going to see is there's this both present and a future meaning. Right? There's a present failure of the priests that are pointing to a future priest who will come. Right? A future Messiah. Jesus. Now, that's kind of chapter two. And the question is then, how do we sort of make sense of this in our life? Right? Clearly, it probably doesn't have to do with boiled meat. Uh, though if you like your meat boiled, feel free. Not my preference. Um, but is it, how does this relate to us? Well, I think clearly it has something to do with, say, I think to us about power and responsibility. Particularly the abuse of power. Right? Eli and his sons are appointed by God. They're chosen to represent Israel. This is really a high calling. This is a, a privilege. And yet, they fail to take this privilege and this power seriously. And the truth is, right, if we flip to modern day life, we see pastors and leaders fail all the time. I mean, sadly, in the last like five years, I feel like, how many people have we read about in the news? If you're around non-Christians, how many non-Christians have read about the failure of Christian leaders? The ways that they have abused power. And if you're a leader or a pastor, you enter into this sort of leadership thing with a fair amount of trepidation. Because the truth is, like, it's not like a magic wand when you, like, become a pastor or a leader where all your sins go away. It's like, dupe, brokenness, healed. Right? We carry that. We carry our sins and our brokenness, and we're always in the process of being transformed, but we're not perfect. It's one of the things I'm really grateful being here at Wellspring that, like, this isn't a Tony or Aaron or leader show, right? We have one of the great things about being on staff here for me is that we actually have elected elders in this space that really lead the church, right? That are elected from you. They're not paid. They're here because they want to be here. They're elected by the church, for the church, to lead the church. Right? They get, they're sort of elected for three-year cycles. They can get elected twice, and then after six years, they have to take a break. Right? Because we don't want anyone in this space accumulating so much power like Eli had. I have to say, I'm really grateful for that. Because it makes, makes it so that my weaknesses, my brokenness, are, are sort of kept in check by a group of people that are trying to steward this place. And their weaknesses are kept in check by the other people on that team. Our hope is to create a safe place here. Because the truth is, if you've grown up in church, if you've been a part of churches, my guess is there's been a time when you've been hurt. I know a lot of people that have grown up in church and there's been a moment or two when they have felt hurt by someone in power. I don't know, maybe this is too vulnerable. Who here has been hurt in some way by someone in church? 
fair amount of us. The thing is, I, I cannot promise in this place that it will be perfect. I cannot promise that none of us will get hurt. But I promise you that we will commit to making this a place where it is the safest possible place for all of us to grow, to ask questions, to disagree. A place where Jesus will be at the center and as leaders we are committing to growing. We are committing to trying to honor Jesus so that this place is a place where you can grow, you can be transformed, you can experience salvation. I do want to say, like, we're not perfect. And if there are questions you have, if there are concerns you have, like, we do want to hear them. We want to create a space where there is open dialogue between the staff and the elders and the leaders. And I just want to say, just on behalf of people, uh, maybe church leaders that have hurt you, I'm so, so sorry. It's really a tragedy when the brokenness and the sin of leaders trickles down and leaks into the pews. I know it makes Jesus weep. And I'm sorry if that has happened to you. Now, that's not the only thing I think this text has to say to us, that we need to be careful with power. And I I think we're called to create a safe place. But I think this text has other things to say to us, too. I think it weaves together a few different strands, particularly around this idea of familiarity and formation. Let me explain. The text says in verse 17 that Eli's sons treated the Lord's offering with contempt, which is a way of saying they kind of disregarded or undervalued the task that they were given by God in the church. Now, in English, we have this phrase, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard that phrase? Right? A person gets used to something and they kind of stop really regarding it. For Eli's sons, they were so familiar with this religious system. They went to the tent of meeting, they got their food, they did what they wanted, right? They did what was right in their own eyes, just like in the period of Judges. They sort of imagined that they were just sort of these bureaucratic administrators of a religious transaction and they had power and they're like, I can do what I want. And they forgot that they were serving in the house of an almighty God. They forgot that they were serving in the Creator's presence. They forgot that they were creatures in the presence of the Creator God. And I think if we're honest, we can do something very similar, especially if we've been going to church for a while. Surely, a few of us are as callous or as cruel as Eli's sons. But I think it's easy for us. I think we can take for granted the sacredness of a gathering like this. The sacredness of being able to attend a church. The reality that we are all called to holiness. The radical forgiveness that Jesus actually offers you and me. We just think, oh, okay, that's just what Jesus does. 
a call to really love our neighbors, to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And we who are parents, I think sometimes we make the mistake of assuming that familiarity with church, oh, we go on Sundays every so often. I send my kids to kids community. I, I take them to youth group. We, we sometimes, I think, make the mistake of assuming that familiarity, with, that familiarity with the Bible or familiarity with church is the goal. When in fact, the goal is formation. Right? The goal for all of us, kids, youth, adults, is not familiarity. It's being formed into Jesus' image. It's becoming disciples that say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. It's becoming a type of person that loves Jesus more and more. I guess my question before us today is whether our familiarity with Jesus, the Bible, the church, the gospel, is actually forming us into Jesus' image. All the stuff we're doing, we're familiar with it, that's great, but is it forming us into more radical disciples? Is it forming us into a people who love our neighbor? Is it forming us into a people that are knitted together in love with the brothers and sisters in the church? Or are we just kind of familiar with it? Are we like Eli's sons, familiar but not formed? Right? When you look at your life in 2021 of January last year, do you see any difference? I'm sure sometimes Eli would look at his son's behavior and at some point just kind of settle for, well, at least they're not killing anyone. His familiarity with his son's terrible behavior seems to have made him less disgusted by it. And I think we do that all the time when it comes to sin in our life, when it comes to choices we make of how we treat people, But it's like, well, that's just what I've always done. Without the disgust, without the sense of, man, this is not okay. This is not what Jesus called me to. I think there's areas of our personal lives and our life together and even our church's actions in the world that we have settled for this not terrible. Instead of trying to honor the Lord, with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. It says in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth and it says that it will convict us. I just want to take a second right here just knowing that the Holy Spirit is in this room and if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is said to be in your physical bodies. I just want to take a second I just sit in the silence and allow the Holy Spirit to speak and convict us. 
But the thing is, it's a sermon. I am not God. Let's see what God has to say to each of us. So Holy Spirit, we do invite you. We say, convict us that we might love you more. May we not settle, God. May we not settle just because it is easy. May we not settle because it is just familiar. Awaken in our hearts a deeper longing and love for you that we may be formed into your image, that we may be disciples. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would continue to speak to us. God, for the ways that we have fallen short, we say we are sorry. God, we do ask that you would guide us in truth this week, that we would be more like Jesus, that our lives would sing of who he is. Amen. Now, this text also does something else. It doesn't just tell us to look at ourselves. It also points us to Jesus. It's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, if you slow down and you compare how Jesus is described in, this, in the Gospels with how Samuel is described in 1 Samuel, you start to see these similarities. And what you start to see is that the gospel writers were actually looking to Samuel in this chapter to say, hey, Jesus was kind of like Samuel, or another way of saying, reading back, Samuel was echoing to who Jesus would be. Let's look at these. Samuel 2.26 says that the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature in favor of the Lord and with people. Luke, in Luke 2.52, says that Jesus grows in stature in favor of the Lord and uh, in, in favor with God and man. Samuel's birth, if you look at the narrative, inaugurates the era of the kings, which unfolds, right, as the, in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Similarly, the birth of Jesus, right, begins, or foreshadows. Similarly, sorry, the birth of Jesus begins a new era of the anointed one or the true king of Israel. Samuel's birth foreshadows both the fall of religious leadership as Shiloh, and Shiloh will no longer be the center of Israel's religious life. Similarly, right, Jesus' ministry heralds the end to the official priesthood in Jerusalem and a shift from Jerusalem as the center of God's religious life among his people. Samuel, at the end of his life, will prophesy the ending of the priestly dynasty under Eli, right? and Jesus will prophesy the destruction of the temple just as Samuel replaces Eli, Jesus replaces the entire 
temple system with his self. You start to see there's these patterns emerging. Right? Samuel is this key religious figure who serves as prophet and priest until the anointed one arrives. Jesus will fulfill both prophet, priest, and king as the Messiah. There's also this sense within the unfolding narrative that Samuel is pointing to Jesus, but simultaneously there's this other narrative uh, unfolding about sort of the, the lack of completeness or the flaws in the priesthood. If you go back to the very beginning, right, Aaron is the first priest, but really at the burning bush, he's a concession, right? Moses is like, I'm not going alone. He's like, wait, at least me bring my brother. Aaron comes into the picture. He's kind of like this concessional figure in Exodus. You also see as the narrative unfolds that Aaron's sons are both, both disobey God, just like here, and both die, just like here in 1 Samuel 2. And you get this sense as the Hebrew Bible is unfolding that God's people need a faithful and righteous priest. And as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we see that this priest and this king, this anointed rescuer, shows up in the first century in the person of Jesus. I want to invite the worship team up because I think it is really important as we consider our own settling, our own familiarity, the ways in which we've kind of settled for what's easy versus what's best, that we do that in light of the fact that God sent Jesus to rescue us. Right? Sin is not something that you can just say, okay, today I'm done, you know? I will sin no more. Sin is this corrosive virus, something we know a lot about. And the thing about sin is that it gets into every crack and fissure of our lives. It gets into the way we think. It gets into the way we relate to people and God. And it's this corrosive thing that actually, even if we could give the best of our thinking and the best of our action and all of our time, we could never eradicate ourselves. And that is why Jesus is so important. He comes to rescue us. Because this is the thing, you cannot rescue yourself. He comes to rescue us and he gives us the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Spirit work in us to make us holy. Our invitation is to let go and allow him to do that work in us. Leaders, pastors, everyone in this body and in God's people around the world, that's what we do. We say, Jesus, heal us. Jesus renew us. And in this song, what we're going to sing about is how God comes to us. How Jesus comes to rescue us. And I just invite you, with your sins in mind, with your patterns of brokenness in mind, focus on Jesus. Because he is the one who rescues and restores and redeems. He is the one who saves Let's stand and worship him. Jesus, you are good and you are holy. And even though we are stuck 
In Genesis 3, right, Adam and Eve eat from the tree, and what do they do? They hide behind the tree because they're ashamed and they're afraid, and there's a temptation when the Holy Spirit convicts us that we will hide. And God will call out to us and say, where are you? And we will hide behind that tree and we will not allow God in. And the story of the scriptures is God walking to us in our shame and in our fear and in our failure, coming behind the tree and saying, my child, I love you. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from my love. Lord, come today. May we be awashed in your love. May we marinate in your presence. May we be saturated in your goodness that we would know today we have a rescuer. We are not defined by our patterns of brokenness. We are not defined by the the ways in which we settle for the familiar rather than being formed into your image, but we are invited to lay our bodies down as a living sacrifice that you can lift up and redeem and heal and cleanse. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord.